Hello, I'm Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist. Hi, everyone. This is Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist, and this is the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. And I'm super excited today because we have a tremendously accomplished woman that we're going to be speaking with today who's had quite a journey. And I think that she can be an inspiration to so many women out there who are, you know, looking for guidance, not only in their career, but if they're transitioning and just trying to find their way forward in this very complicated world. So without further ado, I am going to introduce my guest for today, Coco Brown. And Coco is a CEO. She is an entrepreneur. She is a charity activist. She is a mom and she is a wife. So let us just say she understands multitasking at an extremely high level and somehow has found time today for us. So Coco, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we have covered all fronts with this. We're just lucky to have Coco in our orbit all the way around. So the reason I wanted to have you come on today is that your journey has been really incredible. And so many people are, you know, very confused sometimes about how to pivot, how to transition, but also just in making choices about careers and, you know, what is the best way to, to make those choices. So I know that. Um, I, you know, that you uh, have your bachelor's degree in psychology, which I thought was very interesting. And then you went on to, you know, kind of get a master's in, in business and psychology. And I kind of wanted to start at the very beginning to explore with you, you know, what what, what caused you to choose that and what was your interest? In, and then that and that will be our framework for how that took you through. Yeah, of course. So, um well, I've always been interested in people. I mean, that to, to me, I knew I was going to get into business. Um, and I thought about the business world as having a couple of key angles on it that would be holistic and interesting to me. One is the people angle of the business, you know, the the side of the business that looks at the operations from a people perspective and how they interlock and what motivates them. And bringing ideas together and turning ideas into action and et cetera. There's the financial view of the business. That piece of it also fascinates me, but that wasn't the angle I wanted to lead from initially when I was going to school. Uh, and then, you know, there's kind of the manufacturing side of the business, the product side of the business. So I, I essentially thought about business and the various different angles at which you could approach a business and which angle I wanted to, to, to approach it from. And so it started with psychology. I actually did not get a master's, um, but I, I took a lot of classes at Wharton. Okay. Um, I was thinking about a minor in business uh, as well, but and ultimately I, I focused on my psychology degree and then just entered the business world. Um, and, and as soon as I entered the business world, I think it became pretty evident to me that I wanted to run a business, you know, that, that I wanted to be at the top. <laughs> right. And and so you have an entrepreneurial spirit that's sort of embedded in your DNA, it sounds like. Um, but when you were majoring in psychology, 
Did you ever think it was going to be a hard entree into the business world with that degree? Because I think a lot of people think, oh, I've got to get a business degree to go into business. And I often say, you know, you really don't. You could have a liberal arts background as long as you have good thinking and analytical skills and and an interest. um, Those things can be translated in the business world. But for a lot of younger people, I think they have a very linear view of how yeah. progression goes. And I just wondered how you were well, thinking it, about that. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it also, you know, when I graduated in 1992, um, there were very few sort of um, expected paths to the top. And one of them was not the CHRO, the head of human resources, right? The right. expected paths to the top usually came from, you know, uh, engineering or sales sort of background or finance background. Um, and the more of the, um, those, I, I did, I did realize very quickly that in order to kind of break into the business world, particularly during the recession, which it was, um, I'd have to start in HR. And I didn't realize because I didn't study HR. I did take some organization psychology classes and, and things like that. I didn't realize that the bulk of HR, particularly in younger companies, is really about recruiting and you know governance, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so I very quickly, oddly enough, I my very first um, two jobs out of college, one was doing compensation analysis for Wachovia Bank Card Services, and basically releveling their entire organization, which was fascinating. It's matching, you know, kind of levels and comp bands. And, um, and then I went to work for a, uh, a human resources consultancy out in Silicon Valley. And I've been out here for 30 years almost. Um, and that experience there, she, the woman I was working for was doing compensation analysis for boards. <laughs> right, okay. so, yeah. Super fascinating. So it was all about setting board comp and CEO and executive comp and, um, I did that for a while, and then I moved into uh, in-house HR for a company called NetFrame, which is a uh, you know has been since acquired, but uh, at the time was you know a deeply technical company in the computer uh, client-server space, and and I became uh, I I didn't like the mechanics of HR. I liked the people side of HR, right? The mm-hmm. the actual engagement. Which today, you know, people partners, um, you know, employee relations, those are kind of the the titles. And I moved into that capacity and very quickly became the advisor to the head of engineering and the head of manufacturing and, um, and at times the head of sales and head of marketing most liked the, the, the building teams, engineering and manufacturing. And I was helping them solve difficult problems. Like we take our best engineers and turn them into managers. And now all of a sudden (laughs) they're terrible managers and we're not getting a lot done. So I would help them teach these great engineers to be managers. And I would literally sit with those, those new managers in their one-on-ones and in their team meetings and in their hiring and in their firing. And I'd coach them through the process and and it was great. And then I would deal with big issues between teams. You know, why is sales always off selling things we're not building we're not ready right. to launch that and so i'd help them through those problems and you know getting to launch on a launch date we said we would do and it was fascinating and 
eventually, and I was in my early twenties then, um, oh. and, and just working at the top of the organization. And so I quickly came to understand a couple of things about myself. One, you know, not only am I an entrepreneur, I want to put myself in the center of the biggest problems in the company and try to solve those. Mm -hmm. But I also was very good at seeing what everybody was talking about and then bringing it back to them as a solution that they had come up with, but didn't realize it because they were so busy talking about the parts. Right. (laughs) And I said, oh, you talked about all these parts. Yeah. Yeah. Here's what you came up with. And they go, oh my gosh, that is exactly what we came up with. Holy cow, we had no idea, you know, and then we go execute it. And uh, next thing I know, I end up working for a company called Taos. And, you know, now I become at the age of 27, 28, I was the vice president of professional services. And being a professional services company, I'm running two thirds of the business. So before I know it, I'm, you know, and then I became COO and president and I end up in the top position from HR, which is not a traditional path at all. Um, I think it should be. (laughs) Well, I think you have a good point there, but I want to go back a little bit because I want to, I want to ask you a few questions because you were, you know, you were interfacing with engineers, manufacturers, you were in Silicon Valley in kind of a very techie, you know, environment. And, and also you were, I guess, in a STEM oriented type environment even mm-hmm. though you were, you know, you were dealing with um, HR or organizational, operational kind of behavioral issues and solutions. But what was the presence of women in, in that environment? Did you, mm-hmm. were you one of the only women? Were there a lot of women in the engineering and manufacturing that you were, you know, interfacing with? How mm-hmm. were women being, like you were doing these compensation bans and I was wondering if there was anything unearthed there that is interesting or was everyone kind of on the same band and being treated fairly? Just, I'd like to explore that yeah. issue a little bit because we hear so much about it. Yeah, I mean, I would say I was blind to gender in my 20s and I didn't think about it at all. I think in my mind, I, you know, the bra burning and the fight for women's rights had happened in the sixties and that women mm-hmm. were now equally able to, to ascend in the organization. And so I never really thought about the fact that 90% of everyone in engineering was a guy like that. I mean, I can tell you, I can name the five women, you know, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't think about it. And I didn't think about those women not you know, struggling within there. I didn't think about them struggling to rise. Um, I think, you know, and I also didn't think about, wow, there's way more women in marketing than there are in engineering. Like I didn't think about how we grouped into HR and marketing and customer success and things like that. I didn't think about these things at all. And so just let me ask you a quick question. Do you think there is gender segregation in professional choices or you just professional by, by choice, or it just is the way it's kind of fallen out. Cause I think we have these segregated professions. Exactly. I mean, nurture nature, right? That's the endless battle is like, is this because of nurture or nature? Um, I think my generation definitely is nurtured into, um, the it is nurtured into valuing and pursuing attributes in work that we consider feminine 
And so what I mean by that is like for hundreds, if not thousands of years, there are roles that society places, um, attributes that society places on as male versus female. So those attributes of vulnerability and collaboration and care for others and working it out and figuring it out. And whereas we say that the attributes of risk-taking and building and um, competitiveness and the fight for the win, that those are male attributes. So we do, particularly, you know, in older generations, we do funnel women and men towards roles that, that, play out those attributes, which is why I think in part you see women as over, you know, they're 80%, 70 to 80% of CHROs, heads of human resource are now women, right. you know, 35% of chief customer officers, 32% of chief marketing officers. Why is that the case? I think in part it's nurture and the nature piece, what we've said historically is that the people at the top have to have all these male attributes, which is why you wouldn't find women in engineering or in in um, yeah. as the CEO or the yeah. CFO. But nowadays, what's changing? You know, if I come out with a psychology degree now, it's highly valued because, in fact, I think in a lot of general business, um, in the general business movement is that the CHRO is one of the most valuable, most important functions in the entire company. Should they not be compensated at the same level as your head of engineering? Probably, yes. You know, they're responsible for something really massive in the organization uh, that the organization does not succeed without. And so I think what we're discovering as a society is that it doesn't really matter, you know, did I get tracked into female sort of gender representing roles? Maybe, but those female gender representing roles are now finally being seen at an equal value to the male roles. Um, And and I'm just talking about male attributes, female attributes here, because I'm not one who likes saying women are like this and men are like that. And I just, I don't like boxing people in like that, but you can box attributes that way. And you can say that, for sure, society is valuing female attributes because of things like stakeholder value, you know, sustainability, societal issues. They require vulnerability, collaboration, right. you know, empathy. Uh, so I, because I, you know, I've written a book that's coming out at some point in May. But one of the things I want women to explore, or you know is at least looking into maybe more of a STEM type career. They're a little bit more bulletproof, I think, in certain times of economic ups and downs, but at least, uh, you know, giving themselves the opportunity to explore that because I think women are just equally talented in that it's just something that they don't have maybe confidence or they just think, oh, you know, this is uh, something that, you know, traditionally women haven't done. But you obviously saw some women in your past with the engineering and the manufacturing groups that you were interfacing with and, and how, and, and you, you know, and you were able to, and did, as you were doing that over time, were there more women that were joining on into those particular areas or within the groups that you were with, or did it kind of stay at that level of like five or six women? No, I mean, I, I, I would say that, okay, so now, you know, fast forward, it's the late nineties and I'm, 
running professional services for Taos and we grow to about 700 consultants out in the field, less than 20 of them are women because we're in deep infrastructure, security network, you know, databases, et cetera. So still then, right, then we get into the 2000s and similarly that, that trend continues. And in fact, actually, this is the origin story in some ways of Athena, which is I started gathering female CIOs in my world. That's not uh, investment officers. That's chief information officers gathering female CIOs around me uh, in around 2005 when I was now the president of the the president CEO of the company. Um, actually, I was still COO at that point, but I started um, really taking on the sales arm, which was kind of like the final piece for me to own of the business. Um, and then that led to me becoming the president. During that time, I was meeting with more and more customers as well. And to walk into a room where all of the people are senior leaders, they're all the vice president of, or the senior director of, or the chief information officer, and they're all men. And I look like a kid and I'm a woman and I don't have a technical degree. Right. (laughs) Was that was the moment that I started realizing I'm a woman. I was getting, you know, I started thinking about gender because I would get this like, oh, how'd you get here? And I was like, what do you mean? I client, I I scrambled, I got here. Right. I know. <laughs> but you know, but but the questions started coming and then and the looks and the, you know, and I was like, wow, this this really sucks. And so I started surrounding myself with women who would say, Oh, well, you know, I'm the only one. And I'd say, No, no, there's Jerry Martin Flickinger and Tama Oliver, and there's, you know, Marty Minacho and Gina Rayhag. And, you know, these were women who are now today the CTO of Starbucks and Right. They had Alexa for Amazon, like big deals, right? Even back then. And so I'd get a dinner group of us going together, uh, getting together. And it just, the problem was the same as the problem is today. It just, it moves at 1% per year, which means it it looks the same for generations. (laughs) That is true. Yes. (laughs) So you, so that was kind of your inspiration, so to speak, to begin Athena. Yeah. To formalize it, yeah. And, uh, can you just tell the audience a little bit about what Athena is? It's uh, quite an interesting organization. It's kind of a, a mix of a educational, coaching, networking yeah. uh, support system. But I'd like you to explain it in your own words because I think a lot of these—not a lot, but okay—you know, there are a couple of women organizations that are popping up as support system slash coaching organizations. I think women are trying to find, you know, uh, support and direction as to how to increase that 1% growth so that there's more of it. And, and then, and then the other thing, once we get through that is we need to speak about how they do that with all their other responsibilities that we need to deal with. But let's just talk first about you're, you know, you start these dinner meetings with these like-minded women who are accomplished and in yeah. really unique situations. Um, and so how did that evolve into this kind of formalized organization? Yeah, well, first of all, those dinner, those dinner groups were not about, it's so hard being a woman, you know, I, I, I need help, you know, sort of uh, standing me up and moving me up. And because we already had arrived, yeah, you already are. right? And so what these were about was the ability without any uh, any bias in our heads or externally or any thoughts in our heads or externally to go, okay, so when you say 
that your data center strategy, blah, 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 blah. What are you talking about? You know, or when you're talking about your disaster recovery plan and it was a place to actually be the professional that we are without having to be the gender, you know, and, and that, um, that's a theme within Athena that makes us unique to anything else out there in, in a lot of ways. And it also has led us to creating something that is actually not just needed by women. It's needed by every senior leader. Athena is what I wished I'd had when I was, you know, in two, back in 2002, um, when I took over running the company, I, you know, I, um, my very first job was keep us out of bankruptcy. Right. Okay. <laughs> shut down offices. <laughs> That's a big job. Out, right. And so then how do you do that? You know, how, how do you do that? And I wanted, and I'm busy and I've got a baby who I'm still nursing and we're flying all over the country and we're shutting down offices and we're, it was crazy, you know, yeah, so very so, stressful, very stressful. Right. So, so for me, I wanted to be able to find the right person to talk to at the right time. You did this yesterday. I need to do it tomorrow. (laughs) Real time. Right. And I also needed to be able to learn only what I needed to be able to learn when I needed to learn it. No sooner, no later. So, okay. Right now I need to understand bankruptcy. I didn't need to understand that, you know, five months ago, but I do now. Right. Right. So it's a complicated topic. It's a complicated topic. And I, you know, I want to breeze through it. So what Athena did so Athena's kind of like a Ginsu knife, if you remember those commercials back in the- Yeah, I do, actually. <laughs> so- it, I always wanted one of those. I know, right? Um, but wait, there's more. So so <laughs> essentially this, I, I have to paint the metaphor for you to really be able to see that Athena is not like, oh, there's all these women's group or there's these networks or there's this marketplace or there's this learning platform. Here's the metaphor. I went to Penn. So I'm standing on the walk you know, which is the main thoroughfare and there's Wharton on my right and there's the psych building on my left. And I walk into any one of those buildings and I tap a professor and I say, what goes on here? And they say, oh, let me tell you all about the learning, the tracks, the research, the minors and majors and make your own major ups and, and the study groups and all of this, right? So much learning, academics, academics, academics. If I walk a little bit off the walk and I pop into a club or a sorority. I was not a sorority person myself, but so a club, let's say, Um, uh, you know, and I say, what goes on here? They say, oh, let us tell you all about campus life and how to get involved and how to find your people. Because when you find your people, they're going to move mountains for you. They're going to be with you in 2022, Coco, 20, you know, 30 years from now. And, and this is a powerful network. This is a powerful community. This is the right community for you. You got to figure out how to get involved because you don't have all the time in the world. Then I go to career services and they say, okay, Coco, you're going to, you're going to go places that summer internship, that first job, et cetera, but you're going to have to package yourself up. You're going to need to be really well packaged, right? So your stories, your bio, your CV, your LinkedIn, we didn't have LinkedIn back then, but, and then, oh, by the way, the outside world comes recruiting, you know, Goldman Sachs recruits from here, right? That is what Athena is. No one of those pieces of the pen experience is sufficient without all of those pieces. And they are interlocked and interdependent. They're fluid. They're dynamic. They're not one marketplace for opportunities and jobs. They're not one learning environment where you, you know, massively online MOOCs or LinkedIn learning. 
and they're not just a network. And they're also focused on moving your career, your you as a career person, not you inspirationally and aspirationally. It's right. You're going to learn the technical skills that you need to learn. So, so how do they? How does somebody uh, even get to be part of this group? How about well, you become to be, part of Athena? Yeah. So our entire focus. So Athena's like if LinkedIn met Netflix for business meets a marketplace for board opportunities, right? So okay, right. So I gave you the metaphor, which you know, and then you walk into this in a digital landscape. So what is the commonality in that ecosystem? The commonality today is that we're women. Today it's that we're being built by women. And today it's that it's senior. So you're in likely the bell curve is, you know, kind of the the ends of the bell curve are your late 30s um, and your late 70s, right? Mm-hmm. But you're in that senior career time. You're in career transition. You're in your third act. You're a senior director at Google, you're, you know, a VP at, um, at Databricks, you're, you know, you're a senior individual who's in or around the C-suite, the CEO's office or the board. You can join us either the way 65 women just did with Morningstar, which is Morningstar has 10,000 people globally. They Mm -hmm. took the top 65 women and put them into Athena. Um, as their education on demand for busy people, et cetera. Or you can join Athena as an individual woman. Well, I'd like to join Athena and I fit the the general mold. I'm going to join Athena because I meet the criteria of the women that are in there. So we have 1,200 women that are part of Athena today and growing quickly. Um, So that's kind of how that works. And then um, we can talk about how it works for busy people. <laughs> yeah, and but I just one quick question on the Athena because I'm uh, I'm interested. So, with respect to like the on-demand learning, explain to me exactly what that that means because I think that's okay. very interesting because it's a source yeah. of it's one of those buildings at Wharton, you know, the academia part of it. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's think about you know how kids these days they they argue. I have. I have a 17-year-old and a 20-year-old. And one of the big issues that kids have, particularly in high school, is why do I have to memorize this? I can Google it. Like, there's no point in me memorizing this when I can Google it. And really what learning ought to be about is knowing who to ask, when, and how quickly to get my answers and how to pull together disparate concepts to create a solution, right? Yes, I do need to understand math. Um, and there are certain things I have to memorize, but some of them like history facts, I don't need to memorize that. Right. But I do need to know where to find it or that something big went on over here that I should learn from to bring over here. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you translate that to the executive realm, what is the executive's realm version of just Google it? They don't have one. Right. And, and yet we need one. When I was like, how do I stay out of bankruptcy? That's my question right now for tomorrow. I need to know how to do that really quickly. Where are my resources? How do I get to them? So the the concept with Athena is, look, if you go to a traditional model, an MBA, let's say, it's the case studies are outdated because they took three years to build and a committee to agree to them that that's the case study. 
the the professors are academic. They do bring in guest speakers and things, but it's not dynamic enough. And you're learning right. things 10 years ago that don't exist any longer today. Right. And they all sorts so of new, fluid now. It's so be, fluid. It's not just moment. technology that's fluid. It's business models. It's new roles being created. My daughter was just saying that she was learning that, you know, most of the jobs that she's going to have aren't even, don't even exist today. This is true. So imagine being a busy executive at one of these 1,000 hyper-growth unicorn companies that's out there. I don't have time for an executive MBA or that course or this certificate program. I need to know what I need to know now. So that's what we do. We have hundreds of hours of content on our platform that we're constantly creating every day. Like Thursday, we're is doing- this created by the members as well. Yes. As people- yeah. So this we is provide really- the the, the the we we provide the platform we do the hosting we do the moderating if you need that we we do all of it so all you have to do is show up with your expertise and everybody has something oh let me tell you how i spun this business unit out and created a whole standalone company with it oh great kelly that sounds great you know you created hitch out of out of uh, your company here i think it was so we're constantly learning together we record it edit it and it becomes part of our library just like a Hollywood studio releasing releasing a new movie, tag, tag, tag. Oh, this fits in IPOs, if it's an M&A, and it fits in something else. And so you're exploring those categories the way that you browse Netflix at night for comedy or drama. But So you can join it live. You can watch it on demand. But then you also see Kelly speaking, and you're like, oh, I'm just going to go connect with her in Athena's LinkedIn sort of thing that goes deeper, way deeper than in search capability to find the right person to talk to at the right time. Maybe it was Kelly, maybe it was somebody else in that course. Maybe it was somebody I haven't seen at all um, from those salons, but I'm looking for someone with this industry experience and this knowledge and, and understand bankruptcy so I can talk to them. And they happen to be in Australia. So the way it works is, is there's peer-to-peer conversations, there's live learning that becomes on demand, and then there's also coaching with top-tier executive coaches. Right. So that's really good. I love the peer-to-peer too, because then you can get really granular with your questions and maybe, you know, explore nuances that you couldn't kind of glean just, you know, maybe watching somebody talk or whatever. So you're kind of covering all your bases. So this has obviously gotten a lot of uh, wind beneath its wings. It's kind of growing. And and where do you ultimately want to take this? What's your your kind of end game for this, because it's very exciting, but do you want to keep it strictly in the C-suite or do you want to expand it to other levels within professional, you know, uh, career levels? What's your end game or is there, or you're still exploring that? Yeah. Well, no. So my, my end game, the vision I have is you've, you've heard of Intel inside, I kind of, you know, Athena inside. Athena is a goddess and Zeus is a god, but that doesn't mean that they're just for their gender, right? Athena is the goddess of wisdom and strategy and the right fights and, and transformation and these sorts of things. So Athena inside, what I see is that what I'm describing to you as the way that the modern, the modern executive has to be able to move at the pace of business. And everything that exists for them today does not move them at the pace of business in terms of their learning and their agility to move with the business as it moves. So I want Athena to be that 
that we are the evergreen MBA, the right time, you know, is it a person you need to talk to, a live thing, an on-demand, a coach, right? Like, that's what I want, which begs the question, why just women? So ultimately, I see Athena as for everyone. But what? But why women? There's right now why women is twofold. One, women are not the entrenched existing system. The 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 system of today of how businesses work and how they operate and what you need to know and all of that is is entrenched with um, a, a community that why would it want to change? It's working for them, right? But for women, we have nothing to lose. And we want to see a bigger, different world. So we're 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 precisely the right people to build this. So there's hundreds of hours of content that I'm telling you on everything from IPOs to MA to how to read the financial statements. That's almost all built by women. The second thing is that women need the competitive advantage. This isn't that women need something men don't also need. Every guy I talk to is like, I want to be on that platform. But women need the competitive advantage. We need to be able to move faster. Because we don't want to move it, you know, you know, take our place at one percent per year. Yeah. So right now, with women's representations on boards, a lot of has been written about this. You know, it's obviously not commensurate with where men are on boards. So is there? I mean, obviously, we want to move the ball down the field with women having more board positions because that will make for better companies and a more, you know, diversity and better skill sets and so on and so forth. So you are doing your part for that. How do you, uh, what what would you expect to be the growth of women on boards over the next few years? And then my second question is, is if you do start in, in involving men on this platform, which is all the knowledge is applicable for everyone. It's kind mm-hmm. of like what I write for the fiscal feminist is equally applicable for men as it is for women. I just want to get women focused on it because I think women need, more, you know, more inspiration right now to to get going and the tools to do it. But will you be kind of um, diminishing the the growth of women by including men with uh, the information on Athena? Because right now there's a lot of growth that has to be done for women to even have like an equal representation on boards. Yeah, no, I don't see, um, I don't see Athena becoming for everyone um, this year, you know, I, and, and, and I don't know, may, you know, but when it is, you know, if Morningstar were to come to us and say, well, we have 65 women we want to bring on the platform. We want to bring men and women. I'd say, well, then you can't bring more than 65 men, you know? So so for one thing, um, we will be an equal ecosystem where you find the demographics of society, where, you know, I will aspire to 70, 17% Latinx and 15% Black or African-American and, you know, and not just be satisfied with the numbers, but really an ecosystem of diversity. Right. So it's going to take me time to get there. And I'm not going to do that overnight and just flip a switch and say, okay, now men are allowed on the platform. It's going to take time to figure it out, but I do have to figure that out because ultimately it should be an ecosystem that represents the diversity of all of society. Um, but the, but that, you know, again, that's not going to happen overnight. And, uh, in terms of the opportunities side of things, what I see is that, um, you know, at least for some time until it is 50, 50, which there's a lot of, if you're talking about the Russell 3000, yes, we're at 26% women on boards. Right. But if you're talking about 
the other 3,000, right? Where <laughs> you're talking about the 6,000 ESOPs or the 10,000 venture backed companies or the 8,000 8, private equity backed companies. If you're talking about the other 27,000 companies in the landscape that need independent board directors, we've got a long way to go before there's 50 50. We're at like 9 to 15% representation on boards. So, why? So, is it a combination of that? They just don't, women just don't get chosen because there's men on the board. So they just kind of choose people like themselves or that women aren't putting themselves out there or they're just not enough women or is it the perfect storm of all of those things? I'm always trying to figure out like there's so many smart, accomplished, competent women. Why are they not getting chosen for boards? And, and I'm not exactly sure if it's the combination of they just are not known about or they're being overlooked on purpose. What's your view on that? My view on that is that, um, well, first of all, the average tenure of a board is longer than the average tenure of a marriage in the United States. <laughs> well, I don't know what. I'm, what do I'm you not make sure of that? that's saying much, but okay. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, but, but, well, but my point is this is that um, there is this entrenched, um, there's an entrenched idea of what a board is that is increasingly being challenged. A board is not a, a, you know, a collegial little society that sits inside itself and just, um, you know, is, is, is there to hire and fire the CEO, which is traditionally kind of the, you know, kind right. of view of it. Today, a board has to engage with shareholders and stakeholders and, and and the bench strength of the organization. And in fact, actually, the board is looking down deeper into the organization and succession planning because of things like COVID that gave us a big scare. And so there's a there's a role the board has to play with society that's much greater than it ever did before. And it has a purview that's way beyond comp, nomgov, and um and audit. Now the purview is like oh, audit and risk is also technological and right. sustainability and environmental. And wait a minute, nomgov and comp, there's, there's more, there's the succession planning and there's the, there's the governance around sort of the behavior and who we are as a brand and, and our engagement with society. Like it's way bigger what a board has to deal with than the three traditional um committees and the very narrow view of, you know, what we did when we get together once a quarter. Right. And, but the entrenched system likes it the way that it is, you know, it's, it's been a nice place to sail into the sunset and, right. and get paid you know, and, you know, have a nice gig and have a nice gig. But, um, and so if you take that traditional view on it, there's the, well, not a lot of board seats come around because it, you know, people are sailing into the sunset and they're, you know, staying there for nine and a half. Kind of like the Supreme Court. They yeah. And, for then, a long time. <laughs> and then, um, and then the other is that, well, you know, in order to run a board the way that you traditionally look at a board, um, you know, well, you should have had uh, you, you have to have been a CEO or a financial expert and, you know, CFO or an audit partner. There's a very narrow view of who fits on a board. And then there's right. also like this very narrow, if you've had 40 years of experience, then you've got a lot to offer. Now the modern board is saying, actually, you know, if you've had a, 
have 40 years of experience, you may still have a lot to offer, but we're looking for contemporary experience because the business model that you ran, you're a a dinosaur. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You're a little old now. Yes. And then the other thing, and it's, and it's not just about age because I will tell you, and I don't know her age, but, but Betsy Atkins is a phenomenal board member who deeply learns about like cryptocurrency Mm -hmm. and digital assets and, you know, this is a woman who has been on 27 public boards and taken 13 companies public. So it's not about age. It's about disposition, right? Right, right. Staying current and young. But but the other piece of it is, is about a lot broader skill set. So where I was saying that women are 80% of CHROs now or close to it, and they're 35% of chief customer officers and 32% of chief marketing officers, There are lots and lots and lots of qualified women out there, and they should be on those boards because what do boards have to do? They have to engage with society and sustainability Mm -hmm. and the customer, and they have to understand the customer, and then global markets and people and gig economy and six generations living together healthily. Like Those those problems live in those those roles. Yes. So so it's not... it's just a entrenched thinking that quite frankly, I think that the dinosaurs who are sticking with that entrenched thinking are going to find their day is fast coming. So, and I really want, I got to talk to you about the other side of this, your just busyness with the family and all that, but I need to ask you one more question because I could talk to you forever about this. Yeah. I'm thinking of telling you to run for president, but of the United <laughs> States, <laughs> just in your free time, but um how okay so we know that there are all these great women out there super qualified you know i just love the way that you're explaining this because it shows the nuances of what corporations really are and how they just aren't about the balance sheet and the spreadsheet they there's just such a human component to it and i do think women have a particular way of thinking about that um but how do we get the people that are on the boards the younger people on the boards older people, how do we get them to start thinking in a way where they are actively just saying, you know, we we do need to get more of these qualified women on these boards. I mean, I think that's the one, how do we get them there? What more can we do? We write, it's written about all the time, but maybe those people aren't reading all the stuff that's being written about on this particular topic. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a, a number of things. One is um, when I'm talking to women and when I'm talking to young younger women, one of the things that they need to hear, and in fact, actually one of our members who just joined a public board who had been told for five years, there's just no way your skill set matches to boards. Like <laughs> we're about to do a, a piece on her. Mm-hmm. One of the things that um, has to happen within us, right? Like why am I a CEO? Is because I never thought that I wouldn't be. That, right. You know, I mean, only that, that can only happen within you. You have to say, I don't care what I see out there. I'm willing to be the first. I'm willing to be the only, and I'm going to be there. And a lot of people will say, well, I don't want to be the first. I don't want to be the only. And I'm like, if not you, who, right? Like for one thing, somebody's got to do it. And, and I've got a 17 year old daughter and I don't want her to have to do it. So I'm going to do it. Right. So I think one thing is within us, we have to believe I can be the CEO, I can be on a board, and I deserve to be, and I should be, and I have the right skills for it. So whatever anybody's telling me, my dad, my grandfather, whoever, my mom, whoever's telling me I shouldn't and I can't, or that's whatever, or too hard, or why would you even want that? Which a lot of people say, like, why do you want to be on a board? You know, I don't know. 
do that thinking. Why do you want to be on a board? Exactly. You got to know your raison d'etre. Yeah, you've got to know. You've got to know. And um, so that's what I say to younger women. But then there's a lot of, then there's the other side of it, which is like I, uh, I've talked to hundreds of board directors and CEOs and you know, if not a thousand at this point, like it's been six years that this has been my entire focus is, is getting women into the C-suite and to the CEO's office and boardroom. And so most of those board directors that I talk to are men, right? And so there's Mm -hmm. this sort of spectrum. Um, There's the men who are like, we have to have a woman on our board. Yeah. Diversity. (laughs) Right. I gotta get, I gotta get a woman on here just to check that box. I got to go check that box. And by the way, if she could be a black woman who's gay, that would be fabulous. (laughs) Then we could check many boxes. Perfect. And so there's that guy. (laughs) And then there's the guy who's like, and I've sat across from these guys. I will sooner take my company private than have to bring a woman on my board. I'm like, good for you, dude. Like, you know, is it about you or is it about your company? And so in those two veins, right? Like the super aggro, like gender does not matter, you know, versus the, like the, Okay, people tell me gender matters, but I don't. Is it causation or correlation? I mean, really, like I could debate these studies day all day long, right? Mm-hmm. And you can debate the studies all day long because causation and correlation are a really difficult thing to deal with. Mm-hmm. And if you want to debate it, you will debate it, right? I mean, like, okay. So to me, you know, first of all, what like I just sort of go past that. Like it's it's easy for me to be like, well, look, you're talking to me, so you're not going to get anything else. So we right, that's why we're here having that conversation. Yeah, we don't yeah. have to talk about women, but um, we're going to talk about what you need on your board. And so right. that's where I focus those conversations is, look, I don't know why you need a woman on your board. Can we talk about what you need on your board? Right. Like what needs to what are the conversations that have to go around on around that table that you aren't having today, that you don't have the capability with this current skill set to have those conversations where are you headed strategically that you know certain big things have to happen in order to get you there? Is it an international expansion? Is it a is it a doubling down on a particular vertical? Is it about a brand, you know, rebranding? Is it moving up market from SMB to enterprise? Because when you talk about those things and the kinds of skill you need around the table, I'm going to give it to you. It's just going to be in the package of a woman. Right. Exactly. Right. That's what you're going to get. So let's just forget that debate. But ultimately, why does diversity matter is, I mean, every single guy who has a, a woman on the board that he's on tells me the diversity matters. Every single one of them, even the ones who didn't believe it, because you're just coming at life from a different angle. Why do people, have, um, yeah. you know, two parents, you know, even if those parents come in different packages, like, y- y- like perspective, perspective. Yeah, a diverse and- perspective brings better results because it's a more you know, nuanced and organic kind of thing that can, it's fluid. I don't know. It's better than a bunch of, you know, old white men who golf and that's all they know. You know, they're going to have a definite perspective and it's going to be very rigid. And even, you know, so I was talking to um, Colin Angle. I I, I co-hosted with TA Associates, a, um, a, you know, reinventing your boardroom breakfast. And I interviewed Brian Moynihan, who's the CEO of Bank of America. And then Somebody else interviewed Colin Angle, who's the CEO of um, uh, iRobot. And then, oh, it's George uh, Colony, I'm thinking of, who's the CEO of uh, Forrester. Forrester's board used to be all white men in their uh, late, you know, in, in their early 60s, all from the Boston area who went to MIT or Harvard, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they've been together for 16 years. Forrester is a company that 
is is a research and advisory analytics. It's like Gartner. It's Gartner and Forrester in the entire space of innovation and technology. How could those, that little microcosm, forget that they're just men, all that age group, all that one area, all that one background actually represent and properly steward that one business? And he asked that question, he and the chairman, they're like, you know what? Three of us need to go because we need to make space for people who have international experience and actually who are sitting in Silicon Valley. And, you know, and by the way, and so they ended up with, gender and and they made big changes and Forrester bounced as a result of that, meaning positive. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And that that's a very encouraging. I mean, what you're doing is, is amazing. And I think that, you know, we just need to keep pushing this ball up the hill, but uh rock, whatever it is, but <laughs> you've got a long way to go, but you're really, you're getting the message out there. And I think it's as important to get the women, you know, like putting themselves forward and having this amazing network slash peer group learning experience because like you need to know things in the here and now as you said but also just trying to like change consciousness of these kind of you know died in the wool you know old traditional boards but now I want to talk to you and I I'm going to talk fast and I'm going to ask you to indulge me and give me just a little bit more of your time because you are a mom and you are a wife but mainly you know as a mom you you've kind of grown your career your children are 17 and 20. So you've been growing your career as they've been growing. And this is obviously a topic that a lot of my listeners and me in particular, I mean, I'm old, my kids are old now, but you know, I was a different generation to you. So I kind of did stops and starts along the way. And, you know, I had a lot of fifties mentality and ingrained in my head, even though people often accuse me of being just an old feminist, you know, which (laughs) I'm going to, I'll take that on board. But um, how did you handle it? But more importantly, when you were making the decisions about having your children and continuing to work and how, how did you go through that process and and how did you do it? And how do you feel about it now? That's a lot of questions. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I think, um, so one of the, the ways I did it, I, I have to say I was never a fan of Sheryl Sandberg and she, <laughs> and she was kind of coming on the scene with her whole lean in thing at, at that, you know, kind of yeah. around that time. And, and it frustrated me and made me really angry because it was like, I, I, the message I got was like, you're going to have to show up like a guy and be a man, yeah. you know, and yeah. like, and then have three nannies at home for each of the kids. And I'm like, this is not people's reality. And I don't want to outsource my kids. And, you know, and, and so there were, and I'm really, you know, doing her a disservice and saying this, but this was what was going through my head, you know, no, that's what you were hearing. And that, and that was a legitimate way to hear it in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. And that, that was my experience of it. And, and, uh, and so I did a couple of things. One was when my husband, Scott and I were, were planning on, on actually leaving it all behind. We, I took my maternity leave. I was going to go back for three months and then we were going to hop in our Vanagon and be hippies with our, our little baby boy. And, um, which is like totally normal to do now, but, um, but, <laughs> but at the time it was really crazy. Um, and so, you know, I come back for my, you know, three months that I was going to work and just sort of save up a little bit more. And the two owners of the company came out of retirement and they're, you know, sort of like, Hey, nice to meet you. I, I did know who they were, but barely. And, you know, uh, we've taken, you know, we fired the CEO who, by the way, I loved, and, um, we'd like you to 
BRCO and do a turn turnaround. I was like, oh shoot, I was, you know, can you make Jim do that? You asked Jim to do that because I'm leaving. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm going I'm in my room. And, you know, so I got the golden handcuffs and I couldn't say no, but I was like, my baby, and this isn't what I wanted. I wasn't gonna mm-hmm. do that. I was gonna go off with my baby. So Scott and I kind of were like, all right, well, we don't want to outsource our child either. We're in a position where one of us can stay home. So Scott will stay home. Right. And we thought it was only going to be for three years. We thought, oh, we'll just build this baby back up, sell it and out of here, which did not happen um, that way. But uh, I had to say it, it was really, really hard, but I did a couple of things. And this is part of the reason that I am an entrepreneur is because I believe businesses have to operate differently. We are 100% virtual and always have been. I don't know what hours my team works. Right. I don't know what days my team works. I just know that they work and it works. And they get results. (laughs) And they get results, right? Like I had somebody I just hired say, well, you know, and I have to take my two 95-year-old elderly parents to to their doctor's appointments, you know, maybe once a week and during the middle of the workday. And I hope it's okay. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I, you know, like that's your day. Like, I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah. It sounds like yeah. essential. Right. So, so for me, from the very beginning, I said, I will never miss a field trip. I'm going to drive to or from school at least three days a week. And I'm going to volunteer in the class. And that's what comes along with this package. And, and, you know, you want me to stay on that was, that comes along with this package. Right? And that's how I've always built it. And I believe women need that. Because the fact is, no matter what, even if we are the CEO and the breadwinner, we still, we still are more interested in the doctor's appointments and the organizing the sports and the taking care of the family matters and the getting the family together for Thanksgiving. And it still falls on us. Nurture nature. I don't know, but (laughs) it does. And and, and I think we should embrace that. And one of the things that I just love, I wish we could, we need to do a whole nother interview on that, but yeah, I think that this ability for women, if we want women to continue to have children and be engaged with their children and also have careers, we have got to provide flexible work environments for them. And I feel sometimes, especially in the finance business, um, you know, people want you to show up suited and booted, come into the office. And it's just not viable for women to be able to do that. They can still get the same results. But I think, you, you know, you shouldn't, feel bad about the fact that you need the flexibility because there's going to be a moment in time in every woman's life who decides to have children that, you know, they shouldn't be penalized for that. And there is a motherhood penalty. There is invisible labor. And, you know, 75% of all care for children and elderly is done by women, whether they are CEOs. That's a fact. I've researched it immensely. And I really wish that somehow society, and I think we're moving towards that COVID kind of got us a little bit further down the field, but, you know, we cannot, we cannot be asked to work like we don't have children and be mothers like we don't work. It's impossible, right? right? Right. So we need to have that flexibility. And I just hope that more and more people like yourselves create companies. Now, the thing that really I feel very bad about is that there are some women who just cannot be entrepreneurs right away. And they do have to work in kind of a traditional environment and they still are not getting the support they need. And they're still getting the evil eye if they're, you know, kind of not showing up or if they're working more remotely. And I don't know how we change that, but um, I I just hope that we can all kind of raise our voices more in that realm. Because I think the kind of company that you've created is 
the way that we get more women engaged and still being able to have their families if they so choose to have families, you know? Absolutely. And I, uh, I could talk about that for, yeah, I, I'd love to come back and talk about that again. <laughs> yeah, I think we have to, we definitely for have two. to have one on that because I think really the one thing that so many women, you know, I have a daughter who's 31. Uh, she's a lawyer at a big law firm in New York. Um, they've been working remotely for since COVID. And so that, and I don't think they're ever going to go back to full-time in the office, but there will be office, you know, they're going to go back in some way, but, you know, she's thinking about having a baby and all these things come back up again, you know, like back then, then in my day, I, I stopped working for like 10 years and that wasn't good for me in so many ways. And that's a whole other podcast, but, you know, I don't want that for her, but I also know like that trying to juggle all that stuff. If you don't have the flexibility I'm like a sandwich person. So I have my parents who are elderly. I go there every six weeks. If I didn't have flexibility in my job, it would be impossible for me to take care of them and see my kids and do my job. So um, I think we will do another podcast on that. Yay. I'd love it. So one just last thing before I let you go, and I cannot thank you enough for all the time you've given me is like, if you could give advice to there, in my mind, I kind of look at there are women who are just starting their careers and women who are transitioning. So there might be two sets of advice. You know, I, I love what you said about you need to believe that you can do this and want to do it and not worry about your gender. Just go believe that you can do it because you can, you know, uh, I cite this study in my book about these women at HP who were approached by HP to say, Hey, we've got these jobs for you in engineering and we think you're perfect. So can you apply? We already have kind of basically said that we think you're perfect. And a lot of the women do, didn't do it because they felt they were not 100% qualified. Whereas mm-hmm. men who thought they were 60% qualified applied for those jobs within right. HP. And so I think you're right. Women need to stop being so hard on themselves and expect to know 100% of everything. But what words of advice do you have? Let's start with the young professional women who are out there. If there's like just one short thing you can tell them to get through it all, what is it? Um, I mean, I think it is, it is, it is that just, you know, don't let anyone else, including that mean voice in your head, tell you that you can't go for something like, you know, 90% of the guys out there going for things are faking it. They, they, they're just going for it, you know, and you just have to do that. And, and a lot of, life is first, you know, I mean, you're just constantly learning something new. And it is true that our biggest learnings are through our failures and mistakes. And, you know, you have to normalize that for yourself. And I think it's hard for girls because, you know, they have staging areas on Instagram before they post a photo. Like there, there's just so much, um, girl, girls don't give themselves a lot of bandwidth for, for, being normal for, for just failing and, you know, goofing and being yeah. laughed at and, you know, that's like a whole other podcast, that's too. a whole other, or, and asking, you know, you ask the guy out on the date, like just yeah. get brave, just get yeah. brave and, and be brave because the reason guys do it is because they're so used to posting stupid pictures of themselves and having to ask for some things that they want. And, you know, we shouldn't sit back waiting for chivalry that, you know, and things like yeah. that. Like, just think about yeah. what you There's want no, out of life and go get it. I mean, the thing that kills me and then 
we do have to wrap this up because I could literally talk to you forever, <laughs> is um, that we still have a lot of these kind of traditional notions for our young people, like on Instagram, you know, you, I like being a woman, right? I totally embrace being a woman. I like to, you know, buy clothes that I like and go get my hair done and do womenly things. But I also, you know, want to be my badass, authentic self and I can compete with any man along the way. I just wish that we that women weren't so hard on themselves and they have to be perfect in every way. They have to be beautiful. They have to be thin. They have to be intelligent. They have to be, I mean, oh my God, no one can do that. So, you know, just, I think Instagram and Facebook, you know, they've kind of made those problems worse in some ways, you know, because of the standards that everybody has set on those particular platforms. So yeah, that's another thing to fight against. And I don't know how we do that. But I do want to thank you for a you. Your time B for fighting the good fight and like doing amazing things for women. And I'm going to hope that we just see more and more women on boards. But I'm going to ask you to come back because, oh, my God, this could be a series of many topics. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you so much. All right, Coco. Thank you so much. And that's it for the Fiscal Feminist uh, for this podcast. This has been a cracking podcast, and I hope that you all listen to it. And any feedback, please send to uh, me at Kim K. Davis at the Bonson Group uh, com. And again, thank you, Coco. Have a wonderful uh, start to the week. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. 
This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today.